Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Dr. Bruce McDonald about his experiences as a pilgrim on the Canterbury Trail. We started our conversation with me asking Dr. McDonald how he heard about the Canterbury Trail and what inspired him to be a pilgrim on this particular pilgrimage trail. When thinking about the Canterbury Trail, kind of where I heard of it comes from really the book, the old tales of people going to Canterbury. And really outside of the book, there was very, very little that my friend and I could find on the trail itself. If you think of the Camino de Santiago as kind of one extreme, there's a lot of information about it. You meet a lot of people. And then we have this other pilgrimage that was out there that has been around that there's quite a following from in terms of the book, yet trying to find stuff on it, nothing being there made it appealing on its own. Were you always a literary fan of Chaucer or was the trail sort of in your consciousness or did you read something more recently that kind of piqued your interest? How did you choose at this point in time to do this particular pilgrimage? It is a little bit of a different trail altogether than just about anything else. Part of it is definitely the literary aspect that whether it's Grew up reading a lot of Chaucer, grew up reading a lot of Shakespeare. I lived in England for a number of years through grad school, so that kind of connection back. Part of it was also that I went with a friend that I had met on the Camino in 2005, and we did the Canterbury Trail in 2016, and we had decided we wanted to do something, and we had about two weeks of vacation from his side to try and figure out what we could fit in. And so it was going, well, here are all the different options of different trails and hiking adventures that we could possibly find. And that just kind of seemed like a neat combination between my interests, uh, literary, with his interest in terms of time capacity. I'm curious what prompted you to walk a pilgrimage during your holiday time versus a more consumer or leisure type of activity. (laughs) So I'm probably the worst person to ask that. Uh, One of the nice things of being a professor is I can take my summers and go off and do whatever it is that is of interest to me but then gives a lot of other time to go off and do other types of adventures. And there are all kinds of these neat little micro adventures out there, everything from the Canterbury Trail to the Via Franchigena, St. Swithin's Way, that are neat and interesting, that are part of history, and you go through places that people just generally don't see. And so there's that draw to it, but then there's this draw to the idea of pilgrimage that you don't really understand until you've done one that always keeps pulling you back in. And so there's something about the lifestyle of you get up, your one task for the day is to keep walking. And you're going from town to town to town, engaging with the communities in different places. And so it's a very different kind of vacation, but there's something about it that just always really does pull you back in. And it always does pull me back in as well. So many times when I'm talking to people about pilgrimage, they wonder about the preparation. And I'm wondering how you prepared for your journey on the Canterbury Trail? 
Oh, man. I, I'm laughing because it was a disaster of a preparation. The vast majority of the time trying to prepare was trying to figure out where the trail actually was and where to stay along the, the trail. So if you think of going on the Camino Santiago or going on Hajj, there's very specific plan for where you start, where you end up. You have maps to guide you. You have resources that give different types of accommodations that you can stay at. For the Canterbury Trail, there was really none of that. There was a website that the British government had set up that gave a outline of what the classic trail was that is going from Winchester to Canterbury. In this case, it was a very different set of logistical preparations than the Camino itself. For one, there aren't albergues or a few fields to stay at. So you're staying at Airbnbs or hotels. There was one night where we stayed at a monastery, but it was within kind of a designed room where visitors could stay at. We didn't have to worry about doing things like carrying a sleeping bag or basics kind of along that line. So it really meant we only had to carry clothes that we would need and anything else that we might want. So we were able to go from those nice big 55 liter bags down to like a 10 liter bag fairly quickly, which from a hiking perspective, it's a fairly big difference in terms of what the weight's going to be. So it also makes it a whole lot easier in terms of things like on your feet and on your capacity to keep walking. The Canterbury Trail was definitely nice from that perspective. We probably should have done more hiking preparation than we actually did. I've definitely spent quite a bit of time in terms of doing things like a couple hikes a week, and then you start adding longer hikes once a week and kind of adding more and more distance to each one of them, kind of like you do for a marathon, because it's really what a long distance hike ends up being. For this one, though, probably took it a little bit too lightly by going, oh, it's only two weeks. Uh, we're not carrying nearly as much. It'll be fine. So didn't really do much any preparation in that regards. In part, just the amount of gear that we were carrying was so much less, but also just because we ended up spending so much time just trying to figure out where we could possibly stay. You know, the biggest preparation, as I said earlier, was definitely figuring out the accommodations where we had a Google map open with what the trail was and then going through and measuring distances between hotels and places to stay from that trail trying to figure out how we could stay as close to the trail as possible without having to add unnecessary distance. We spent weeks and weeks and weeks with hours every week planning that part out. It probably would have made the rest of the trip a little bit easier had we done more of the hiking preparation, but required a little bit more uh, forethought than we had at the time. So from the point where the two of you decided to do this pilgrimage to when you actually left, how much time elapsed? Three weeks. So it seems actually quite spontaneous, almost like you had the idea and then you were literally on the trail. I was getting ready to head to Europe and go visit some friends. And he was like, well, you know, I want to do adventure. He's like, I want to go to Europe. And he's like, but yeah, you know, he didn't want to go hang out with my other friends in Greece. And so he was like, well, let's do something else. And it was the idea. And we were like, well, we can do it at the beginning around his work schedule and so it was really a spur of the moment kind of thing where you're like, well, let's start walking and then you just kind of go from there, which for me has a 
more classic romantical feel of you just get up one day and walk out your door and just keep on going compared to the let's plan it for six months or nine months or however long people plan for. From that perspective, it was a lot of fun. There were, of course, you know, challenges that come with that. You've mentioned a few times that locating accommodations was a major part of your preparation. What type of infrastructure currently exists or existed at the time that you walked the Canterbury Trail? There's absolutely no infrastructure whatsoever. Uh, they do have a pilgrim's passport, kind of like you have on the Camino, that you can get stamped along the way, that you pick up in Winchester, and you can turn in in Canterbury. The downside is once we left Winchester, we never could find a place to actually ever get it stamped because nobody knew that this trail existed in the first place. Even though we were hitting those main churches along what is supposed to be the path that you take. There's a couple main different little towns that you hit along the way. And then there's two main national trails that follow those paths. So you're basically following those trails themselves. And so even as you walk along it, you'll see road signs for the Pilgrim's Way, where they've named all their local roads after the pilgrimage to Canterbury. There's no signs that actually point you here to where the trail's going. There's no books that really give you much information about how to find or follow the trails. It's just a, a luck of the draw to make sure you are figuring out if you're on it, how to stay on it. Did you see any other pilgrims along the way? Not a single one. We met a lot of day hikers who were coming in for different parts of it. And we got a lot of opportunity to meet people in the communities because by the time you actually figure out where we'd stay, pretty much fairly small towns. There's a British movie from 15 years or so ago. It's The Holiday. And it's a lady from the UK and a lady from the US switch you know, houses over Christmas vacation and the town where that was filmed in the UK is there's no stop signs. There's no red lights. There's five or six buildings in the town and then small houses. And one of those buildings was a pub with a room above it that you could stay in. And so we walk in where the only people in the town who aren't British, everybody comes down to the bar and is buying us drinks because they're all trying to figure out why were we there? And they all thought, First, we were there to see the landmarks from the movie, but then they realized that there's something else about why we're there. And so while you didn't get that interaction with pilgrims, it was an absolute blast of an experience with the British people. I'm really into hearing about the serendipitous happenings that occur on a pilgrimage. Can you recall any of these interesting stories from your journey? On the south side of the UK, there's a lot of remnants from World War II with the preparations of the Germans were going to invade. And so you'd be walking along and then there would be these little pill holes that still remained that you could go into. One of the mornings we met this old Irish guy who was there and he was going from pill hole to pill hole visiting them all. And so for probably five or six hours he walked with us and then he would stop us and give us a history lesson about each of the pill holes that we passed. It's things like that that you don't really normally come across. Our second day, we got fairly lost. And by fairly lost, we were definitely in a set of woods that we had no idea where we were. And we just picked a direction and kept walking until we hit a road. And finally, somebody told us which direction to go. No one would give us a ride, but at least point us so we had some idea. It seems like the pilgrimage could really change the dynamic between you and your friend. And I'm curious how 
how did the pilgrimage change or enhance or maybe not the relationship that you had with Victor? It's hard to say. I mean, I met him on the Camino in 2005, walking alongside the road in the middle of nowhere, someplace about a day from Surya, which it's about five, six days from the end of the trail. He lives in Baltimore. His name is Victor. I should probably throw that out there. So he lives near my sister. So I see him two or three times a year whenever I go to see my sister and we'll go out and grab a drink. But most of our friendship is built around this idea of going on pilgrimage or some type of adventure. I think one of the things that makes it interesting or has made it interesting is one of my bucket list of things has been the Via Francigena, which then goes from Canterbury all the way to Rome, which is fairly hefty distance, takes about three months, and you go across the France over the Alps and everything else along the way. And while he had only been able to get two weeks off for the Canterbury Trail, you know, he has bought into the idea of doing the Via Francigena with me, um, in part because he's figured out he's missed that adventure side as well. I think a lot of it, or what has come out of our relationship and our friendship, has been the idea that there are the people out there who are interested in going off and doing these crazy things that people don't understand. And it's just a matter of going, well, why not? I'm sitting here thinking about how fortunate you are to have such a kindred soul to travel with. Outside of Victor, who seems to get your jam, how do other people respond to you when you tell them you are going on a pilgrimage? I think the responses fall into two categories. The first would be people who look at you and go, why in the world would you ever do that? Which I don't actually have a good answer for. There's just something about that lifestyle that really captures you and holds on to you. Then there's the other group of people who go, you know, holy crap, that sounds like fun. I want to do it. And I'm like, well, are you sure you want to actually do it? I think most people like the idea, but very few people actually want to get up and figure out how to actually make it happen and do it on a day-to-day basis. So going back to the Canterbury Trail itself, what made this a pilgrimage for you? It was also the entry point to the UK for the Catholic Church. So if you couldn't make it to Rome, or if you were going to Rome, you'd go through Canterbury, and people from the Catholic faith would go for that reason. And then really when England separated from the Catholic Church, Canterbury really did become its uh, religious centerpiece. And so you wouldn't do a pilgrimage to Rome because you weren't going to be Catholic. It's so exciting, isn't it, to see people becoming interested again in these historical pilgrimages? Certainly some pilgrims are motivated by religious or spiritual reasons, as we know. And we're seeing that many pilgrims, however, are seeking out these pilgrimage experiences for health and well-being reasons. What would you say about how your pilgrimage impacted your own well-being? For the two weeks, I've probably never had as much beer in the rest of my life. Uh, I, I say that because you're going from the small towns and you're the only person there who's not British. So we'd show up at a pub and everybody started buying us drinks. And if we didn't have the drink, they would all get upset with us. So you just kept on drinking as you went. So at this point, I'm thinking this is a beer pilgrimage. It reminds me of the quote by Thomas Jefferson, who spoke about beer in moderation, promoting health. Kind of like the great classic British bar crawl, I guess, in many ways. But you know that certainly wasn't the intent. I think comparing it to the Camino de Santiago, where you have so many people out there 
it's easy to lose while you're on the Camino. You go off for a reason, and then all of a sudden, your entire life becomes overwhelmed with the people around you. Everybody's there for a reason, but it almost then becomes it doesn't matter what your reason is. It's all about the community. On the Canterbury Trail, there wasn't that community because it was just the two of us. And so it gives a lot more time for inward reflection and more personal time as you're going. So you know, we wake up, we have eight hours of walking ahead of us for an hour or two of the day. You're sitting there talking about stuff, but after a couple of days, you run out of things fairly quickly to talk about. And so it gives a lot more time to think about the choices you've made in your life, think about why you're there, what you want to do, than you would necessarily have on some of the other trails. What are some of the things that you thought about? There were definitely a couple of days of what the heck am I doing out here? For me, it's more about the slowing of my thoughts more than actually what the thoughts themselves are going to be. So that's settling down and taking the time to be more than anything else. Are there other areas in your life where you find that same sort of contemplative mindfulness? Or is it really specific to a pilgrimage journey? For me, the other times I find it is either when I'm doing hiking, which is kind of what a pilgrimage is anyway. It's just the pilgrimage is going to be hiking towards a certain destination over long periods of time. And so it gives more of that opportunity than the five, six mile hike that I would go off and do at the national parks near my house. Or if I'm sailing, when you become very focused on trying to do one thing, and that's make sure your boat keeps on moving. And so all of a sudden, nothing else really matters. In many regards, the idea of going on pilgrimage and sailing reflect each other for me. It's all about one thing, trying to get to where you're going, and everything else melts away because you have that singular focus. And if you don't have that focus, then you really are probably going to start running into problems and not actually get there. You bring up a really interesting point about pilgrimage and heading towards a destination. And I'd like to hear more about your thoughts around this. Is a pilgrimage a pilgrimage without the destination? Part of me says no. You have to kind of have the destination in mind because if you think about the definition of a pilgrimage, it is about going on some type of religious walk, religious or spiritual retreat towards something. So if you don't have a destination, it's more of a contemplative walk of some sort. But there's also the idea of the katiwampal, the walking aimlessly with an intent of purpose. If you have the purpose of walking, even with you don't necessarily have the destination in mind, it can still be a pilgrimage of sort, I suppose. I love that word, katiwampal. It's now my new favorite word of all time because in trying to explain to people why I like pilgrimages, I'm like, it's a cottywomple. Cottywomple. It's so fun to say. And it's a word I never knew I needed in my life, but I am definitely going to be finding ways to incorporate it. I'm wondering, after you returned back to the United States from your pilgrimage, what changed for you? When I did the Camino de Santiago in 2015, I was going through a divorce and between the Camino Santiago and the Canterbury Trail was the finalization of that. And so there was definitely this process on the Camino Santiago in 15 about coping with the idea that the divorce was happening and everything else. What I came away from the Canterbury Trail was the idea that, well, yeah, it happened, but then it's the moving on aspect, you know, what comes next. I'm really hearing that the pilgrimage itself was a rite of passage that marked an end 
as well as a new beginning. You knew who you were beforehand, but then it's a reminder then of going, okay, well, here's who you are now and refining and refiguring out that for myself. That's huge. And isn't it very common for pilgrims to be going through some type of life transition when they go on a pilgrimage? And then the pilgrimage itself becomes the way of coping or having the time and space just to dedicate to that transition. Having not actually met anybody else on the Canterbury Trail, but thinking about people I've met on the Camino Santiago or on the Via Francigena, almost all of them are going through some kind of change or something that has sparked their desire to get up and go. Either it's they aren't going through a change, but they don't like where their life has been, and so they want to figure out what else to do. Some kind of using of the opportunity to allow the pilgrimage to be the catalyst for moving on to something new or something that's next. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you grew up reading Chaucer and that you lived in England for a number of years. Was there something that seemed significant about returning to England during the time of your divorce? One of the towns that we got fairly close to was Reading, uh, which is where I ended up living most of the time. I spent a lot of time of the trail hiking through Surrey, which is where a lot of my friends lived. And so we're going near towns or next to towns where I knew people who used to live there or have experiences there. And so it was a nice closing opportunity from that regards to go, okay, well, I've walked into it, but I'm making that intensive choice to walk on and keep on moving to whatever's next. Did the experience feel like a homecoming for you in some way? It did. The second day, we were walking into a town and the friend wanted to stop off and grab lunch and he wanted to find a couple stores to pick up different supplies than what he had on hand. And so walking in, it was, there's a bar over here and the store's over on this side. So there was definitely the home feel of going in familiar territory, even though I didn't run into anybody I knew, but it was definitely a stepping back into a place that I knew and a place that I felt comfortable with. An interesting theme that has emerged from my own research around pilgrimage has been the importance of sharing meals with people along the way. You've alluded here to eating in pubs and drinking in pubs. I'm wondering more about the kind of hospitality or sharing meals with others and what that meant to you as part of your pilgrimage. That part was actually quite fascinating because most people had no idea that the trail went through their community. And so they're showing up at the pubs going, there's an American here, or I guess there's two of us with backpacks. No one's going, what the heck are you doing on here? And so it gives you a connection back to them because you're letting them know, one, that this trail exists and it runs you know, right past their house. And so while you don't necessarily have the communal meals with other pilgrims, it was very much a opportunity to engage the community itself during the meals because you would sit down. There was this one little small cafe, and I'm sure it was near a city. I have no idea what city it would have ever been because it felt like we were in the middle of nowhere, where we walked in and they had scones and everything else and the lady who was there we were trying to pick out what we wanted to order and she said no 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 just go sit down and she came out with a really hot lentil soup it was the soup that she had made for her and her husband they had you know extra and so her and her husband just came out and ate the hot lentil soup with us over lunch which it was different it's not something you normally encounter if you go into any place here in the u.s that the people are going to be like oh well we'll have lunch with you 
So you get to learn about the people and the locations. You get to learn about their history. After these type of very meaningful experiences, what was the adjustment like for you in terms of returning to your regular life? The adjustment's always fairly difficult and fairly slow. For one, you're coming back to a life in the U.S. where people generally aren't used to doing the kind of thing that you're doing. And so there's a disconnect between their ability to comprehend what you've been through. One of the nice things from this was the year before when I had done the Camino, develop a nice network of friends that I spent a lot of the time on that trail with around the world. And so even while I came back and didn't have that connection or friends that would really understand what I went through, I was able to call my Camino network and be able to be here's what it was, here's what it was like, and have that ability to connect back on a more intimate level with what had gone on. I've asked you a lot of questions during our time together, and I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would like to say about the pilgrimage to Canterbury that I haven't asked you about. Canterbury was all about getting up and keep moving, but then you have to figure out everything else that it actually takes. So finding you know places that you can eat, finding places that you can sleep at night or whatever else it is that you end up meeting along the way. And so you become a little bit more self-reliant, or at least I became a little bit more self-reliant probably than I was beforehand, where I should say maybe more confident in my ability to just get up and do what I need to do and get it done without having to turn to family or friends and go, okay, here's what's happening. I need help. 2020 has been designated the year of cathedrals, the year of pilgrimage in Britain. If I wanted to go on the Canterbury Trail this year, what information would be helpful for me to consider in terms of planning my journey? Since we did it in 2016, there's now a group that is reestablishing the Canterbury Trail through the British Pilgrimage Trust. Rather than doing the trail from Winchester like we did, which is the traditional trail, they're establishing it based off the old 14th century maps of where it went through. The lack of resources that we really had in terms of a map, places to stay and everything else, they're trying to address to make it something that's a little bit more obtainable for people to actually go off and do. So even though we did the old version of the trail, there's still now this new one out there that is kind of desirable on its own. And the idea behind the new one is not to get to the extent of the Camino de Santiago, but still to have the resources so that if somebody does want to do it, that it is there for them to be able to do. So they've been working with some of the churches to build small little uh, albergues onto the church where pilgrims could stay. They have the GPS coordinates that they are in, directions of where to go and what to do at the different spots in order to get you from, I think it starts in Southampton all the way over to Canterbury, It'll be a very different trail than the one we did. But once all that information is fully posted on their website, I think it'll be an interesting journey for anybody to undertake as well. For more information about the Canterbury Trail and other British pilgrimage routes, check out the British Pilgrimage Trust's website, www.britishpilgrimage.org. You just heard Cotty Wample, produced by Dr. Heather Warfield and edited by Janine Marr. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email 
info at MeaningfulJourneys.net or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.